So we started a message last week called Building the House. And our scripture was from Psalm 127. Let me read that to you. Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And we talked about in building the house that we need to understand our labor. We talked about labor. There's a labor that we can do. There's a work that we can perform. A labor that we can expend in this life that has no eternal value. We read uh, Solomon's writings from Ecclesiastes where he says, Of all our labor on this earth, there's nothing that we're going to be able to take in our hands and carry with us out of this life. And in that sense, our work can be very vain. It can be vanity. But the Bible has a lot to say about labor. And the scripture also talks about labor in the sense that we labor in the Lord. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that our labor in the Lord is not vain. He says, be steadfast and movable, for your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Paul writes and he says, there's coming a day when every man's work will be manifest of what kind that it is. Some of wood, some of hay, some of stubble, some of precious stone, silver, and gold. And the fire, he says, will determine what sort of work it is that we have done. That which is not gold, silver, and precious stone, he says, will be burned up in the fire, even though we will be saved. And so we need to understand our work. We need to understand our labor. We need to understand that our work and our labor is a witness. Ephesians 4, we read that where it says that God gave through Jesus Christ gifts to men. He gave gifts to the church, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And he gave those gifts for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. Who's a saint? Well, contrary to what some believe, the Bible says that if you are in Christ, if you are born again, if you are a child of God, the Bible calls you a saint. And that word saint just means you are one that has been called out. You belong to God. And so the work of ministry is given to the saints. It's given to God's people. It's given to those who have been called out by God. It's been given to the church. And so each one of you, if you are trusting Jesus, if you count yourself a follower of Jesus, if you are a child of God, the Bible says that you have been given this responsibility, that you are to be involved in the work of ministry. The work of ministry is not just for pastors and teachers. It's not just for apostles and prophets and evangelists or missionaries or people who find their vocation and their living in the church. 
But the work of ministry is all of our work of making Christ known, of giving witness to the gospel with our words and with our deeds. And this gathering today is about equipping you to go out and do that work of ministry. I, was, I, I did a wedding yesterday and I was talking to the father of the bride. And he was telling me that a church that he went to, they did a sermon series on, what's this Pokemon game? And they were all hunting Pokemon in the church. And he said, I'm going to be honest with you, Pastor. He said, it made me mad. He said, I got mad. He said, I'm like, what are we doing hunting Pokemon in the church when we should be looking for Jesus? And I'm just sitting there. I'm just kind of, you know, listening to him. He said, I, he said maybe I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. He said, but, but it made me mad. And he didn't use the word mad. He used another word that begins with a P. And, and he said, I was off. Excuse my language. But he said, I just don't think that's what we ought to be doing in the church. I said, well, I said, you know, some churches take this philosophy, and they believe because this is the big fad that if, if if they can be seen as a church that's promoting this thing, then people who wouldn't normally come to church would come to the church, and, and maybe they would hear something. And he said, well, that's, that's not biblical. <laughs> I'm like, well, he said, that's not right. And I'm just sitting there and, like, agreeing with him. My job as a pastor and our job as a church is not to make this place more attractive to lost people so that they'll be manipulated or drawn to come here. Now, we shouldn't make it unattractive, right? We try to provide comfortable chairs. We try to provide conditioned air. Hopefully, it's as cool as it needs to be or as warm as it needs to be. We try to make sure the roof doesn't leak, but you can see there are some water stains here and there where water finds its way through if it rains hard enough. But in general, you're not sitting there getting wet when it's raining. So we provide a, an atmosphere, an environment that's comfortable for you to do what? To come and to be equipped for the work of ministry. Because what the Bible teaches is that as you are equipped for the work of ministry, Jesus has commissioned you to go into the world and make disciples. And you can do that in your home, at your dining room table. You can do it at the coffee shop. You can do it at the workplace. However you, wherever you do that. At the grocery store, at the playground, at the ball fields. In whatever context, we're commanded to go into the world and to make disciples. And as you go and you make disciples, you should bring those disciples with you to the equipping station, which is the church. And, and they, in turn, then, are going to be equipped along with you to do what? To go back out into the world, and then those disciples will go out, and they will begin to make disciples. Now, you don't have to wait till you get a four-year uh, seminary degree to do that. You don't have to know a whole lot about the Bible to be able to go out and be a witness for Christ. But you should have a desire to know this word because in knowing this word, you will come to know your Savior and your God and your Creator. And, and as you come to know Him in a deeper way, you are 
even more equipped to go out and to make disciples. So we need to understand that the work God calls us to is also the witness he calls us to because our witness is associated with the work he's called us to. The work of ministry is giving witness to the gospel of Christ. We said that we need to understand the cost. There's an, there is a cost associated with our witness and with our work. The word witness, we said, is the word martyr. We think of the word martyr as those that have been killed physically for their faith in Christ. But the word witness, when Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem and you'll receive power to be witnesses to me, it is the Greek word martyr. He wasn't saying you'll receive power to to be killed for me. He was saying you'll receive power to live for me. Now in living for him, you might experience death because of your faith. But here in America, that's, that's not what it means to be a witness. For the most part, I don't think any of us go out and we're afraid that if we invite someone to church or we try to witness for Christ that we're going to get our heads chopped off or that we're going to get shot. I'm not saying that's not impossible, but I'm saying that's an unreasonable fear for us. I'm not worried about someone walking through that door and killing me because I'm preaching the gospel. I'm not worried about my government coming in here and driving all of you out and bulldozing our church because we are a gospel-centered church. That day may come, but it's not today, and I don't think we're going to have to worry about it anytime soon. So we should be able to go out without fear and give witness to our faith. But we are fearful oftentimes, aren't we? We're fearful because of Here's the, here's the form of persecution we experience in America. They're going to think I'm mean. They're going to think I'm a bigot. They're going to think I'm a racist. They're going to think I'm narrow-minded. They're going to think this. Or, well, don't give them reason to think that. There should be no reason for anyone to think that a follower of Christ is a bigot, a racist. Remember, God doesn't see color, so why do we? God's not distinguishing distinguishing between rich and poor, so why should we? We shouldn't. But because some sins have become more socially acceptable and even popular today, we are fearful to speak against those things because the culture will press against us and call us names and hurt our feelings. And we become unpopular. And we so desire popularity. Have you noticed that, guys? That we live in a culture today that is desperate for popularity. That's why social media is exploding. Because everybody wants to be popular. And if I stand up for the things of God, guess what? I might not be as popular as I would like to be. The question is, are you willing, are you willing to pay that cost? Are you willing to sacrifice your popularity to stand in the truth? Now we should always stand in the truth and we should always stand in the truth in love. 
And the world may question our love, but if we are truly standing in love in Christ, that question of love is not going to be a legitimate question. When we tell people the truth, they don't always like it, and they will tell us that we're unloving, we're unkind, we're this, we're that. But we need to know the difference. No one disputes that Jesus was anything but loving. Yet, if we're honest, and we will take the time to read and study our Bibles, you will see passages, whole chapters like, John chapter 8 or Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus sounds very unloving by the world's standards. I mean calling people vipers and snakes and sons of the devil. That, that, that could be construed as kind of unloving, couldn't it? Well, surely Jesus never did that. Oh, actually, he did. You say, yeah, well, those people deserved it. And you don't think you do, and I don't? Do, do we think we're better? No, we're not. None of us get what we deserve. I heard a quote today. I love it. Have you ever heard this? Now, this is what I always would say. There's a, a book. A rabbi wrote a book. Why do bad things happen to good people? And I have always said what we really should be asking is why do good things happen to bad people because we're all bad but I heard something today that I thought was was just phenomenal why do bad things happen to good people that only happened once and he was a volunteer <laughs> I thought that was so good that was R.C. Sproul Jr. that's from our 915 Bible study why do bad things happen to good people that only happened once and he was a volunteer there has never been any bad things happen to good people because there are no good people. I didn't say that. The Bible says that. It says it in the Old Testament. It says it in the New Testament. Paul quotes the Psalms. There is none good, no, not one. Jesus said it to the rich young ruler. Good teacher. Whoa, stop. Why do you call me good? For there is none good but one, and that is God. And the implication there is Jesus was... The unspoken question was, so do you know who you're talking to? Because Jesus is God. So we need to understand the cost. But we also need to understand the benefit. What is the cost? The cost is that you will lay down your life. The cross demands all. But God doesn't just stop at the cost. With any cost and with the cross, there is benefit. There is always a benefit associated with any cost. Jesus didn't just die on the cross, period, end of story. The cross cost Jesus his life. But God didn't stop at the cost. He conquered the cost which was Jesus' death on the cross. And he conquered that through the power of resurrection life that is abundant and eternal and made gloriously and graciously available to us in Jesus Christ. 
we can reduce the benefits down to this one word, and it is glory. God did all that he did for glory, for his own glory. And if in your mind you think, well, that sounds kind of arrogant, you and I don't have the right to stand above God and call him arrogant because he seeks glory. Because he is God and we are not. We don't know what to do with glory. We are the arrogant and prideful ones. God has done all things for his glory, and rightly so. We glory in his glory. And the glory of God is full. And the Bible says it is bursting with joy unspeakable. And in that glory is life and salvation in Jesus Christ. And that life and that salvation is manifest in the hearts of men by the power of the gospel. And the grace that God gives to you to lay down your life is grace for you to see the dead raised to life by the power of the gospel. The grace that God gives to you is a grace to see the dead raised to life through the power of the gospel. If you can see that, then you have been raised to life. And you have been raised to life, not just for yourself, but you have been raised to life so that the witness of your life, the witness of the gospel working in your life will also bring about those who will believe. And so then their lives will be also raised. And this is the call, that we would embrace our death in the cross. And embracing our death in the cross, we receive His life. We receive His salvation. We're given the grace to walk in it. Embracing the cost of losing your life, you do that that you may gain the benefit of His glorious life and His glorious salvation in Christ. And the benefit is for you and it's for all those who would come to see His gospel and His glory. So Jesus invites us to embrace the work and to be a witness and to become a martyr knowing that He raises the dead. He invites us he commands us to embrace the cross, to embrace the cost, and to experience the benefit, the gain of His life and His glory. So we need to understand our labor. We need to understand our witness. We need to understand there's a cost. We need to understand the benefit. And God does all of this. He works all of these things throughout our life. Which means we need to understand the season. We all know what, what season are we in right now. We're in summer. And just last week when it was yesterday, I was driving. I think it was yesterday or the day before. said the temperature is 92 but it feels like 102. <laughs> like, wow. Well, I'm glad it's not 102. So when we had that 
week or ten days of intense heat. Everybody was saying, boy, I'll be glad when fall gets here. Boy, I'll be glad when winter gets here. Why do we say that? Why, would, why do we even think that? Because we know that seasons change, right? God made the world in a way that gives witness to His goodness, His grace, and His glory. And whatever season of life you're in right now, here's the good news. Seasons change. So we need to understand the season. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. To everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what was planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. We're talking about building the house. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Solomon wrote, there is a time to tear down and there is a time to build. We need to know what season we're in. We need to understand our seasons so that we're not trying to build in the season that God says, this is tear down season, this isn't build up season. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. The Lord knows the season. He is Lord over them. He knows the time to tear down, and He knows the time to build up. Luke 9, verses 23 and 24. This is the verse where Jesus says, If anyone desires to come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. If you are trying to Hold on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you are willing to lose your life for my sake, then you will find it. To take up the cross, we must let go of whatever we are holding on to. The cross is not something... I, I'm notorious for this. I hate making multiple trips to and from my car. My wife will attest to this. So I've got my computer bag. I've got my... Bible, I got my water bottle, I've got all the other extra things that I need for whatever, my other notebooks for my meetings I got to go to. And here I am and I'm 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 putting things under my arm and I'm holding things in this hand and I'm holding things with this finger, you know, I got that water bottle that's got that little hole and I can hold it with my little finger, you know, and I don't have to have my whole hand. And I got this and then I'm trying to get the keys out of my pocket, you know, because I got to unlock the door and, and I got to put this thing under this arm and, and I'm there and I would say 95% of the time I make it okay, but there's always that 5% of the time when just when you don't need it to happen, you know, my Bible, I hate it when my Bible falls on the ground. That, that really disturbs me. And here my Bible is slipping. It's like, oh, man, my Bible's going to hit the ground. It's going to hit the ground. It's wet outside. You know, and then everything just falls. And I tell myself, you know, it would have been a lot easier if I would just made two trips. That works for me most of the time. I can usually get everything together and make one trip. But, but when Jesus said, you must take up your cross and follow me, listen. You, you, the cross isn't something you pick up with one hand. The cross isn't something you can take up while you stuff everything else under your other arms. And No. In order to take up the cross, 
you, you've got to let go of everything. The cross is such that the only way you can take up your cross is to let everything else go, to leave everything else lay, and you take up your cross. Because the cross demands all. It demands all. We can't embrace the cross partially. It demands that we lay all down to take it up and follow Christ. In the cross, there is always a tearing down, but there is always a building up. You and I may not fully know the season, but God does. And as He does His work through the cross, we are called to embrace even the hard season of tearing down. We do this knowing that God never leaves His children torn down, but He tears down in order to build up. Let me read a scripture. We sing a song. I almost asked Caleb to sing the song today, but I didn't. It's from the book of Hosea. Go to Hosea chapter 6. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. Listen. For He, the Lord, has torn, but He, the Lord, will heal us. He, that's speaking of the Lord, has stricken, but He will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. He has torn, but he will heal. He has broken. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. In the cross, there is a tearing down, but there is always a building up. And God does not leave his children torn down, but God will tear down his children in order to build them up and conform them and transform them into what he has purposed for them. And the Bible doesn't leave us in a mystery there. Well, what, what is God purposing for me? What, what's God doing? Why is he tearing me down? And here's what the Bible says, that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. The work of the cross is to tear us down so that God can build us up and transform us into the glorious image of His Son. I want you to consider for yourself what taking up your cross daily looks like. Consider what the cross is working in you. And what God might desire to cut away and to put to death through the work of the cross. In Galatians chapter 6 verses 14 and 15, Paul says, I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to me. In other words, Paul was saying this. He says, I am dead to the world and the world is dead to me. The world has nothing in me. And I have nothing in the world. Paul came to possess and to embrace Christ 
as his greatest gain and the cross as his only boast. Everything outside of Christ, he counted as loss. He was able to do this because he measured all things against the exceeding priceless value of what he had gained in Christ through the work of the cross. Please consider what it means for you to be crucified to the world and the world crucified to you. Ask yourself what work the cross is working in you. As you perceive that work, ask if you are discerning and hearing and moving into or running away from the work of the cross. Listen, our flesh, what the Bible calls our old man, our old nature, Paul writes this, he says, put off the old man and put on the new man. That old man, our flesh, does not like the cross. The cross is opposed to everything that the flesh is, and this is why the flesh hates it so much. This is why the flesh resists it so much. As we read the book of Romans, we're teaching verse through verse through the book of Romans on Wednesday night, and we're going to get to these chapters, Romans 6, Romans 7, Romans 8, where Paul really deals with this carnal nature, and Paul paints this picture that our carnal nature is absolutely diametrically opposed to the work of the Spirit. It's opposed to the work of the cross. Our flesh, our old man, resists the work of the cross because the work of the cross is the death of the flesh. It's the death of our carnal nature. And God has promised to complete the work that he has begun in you even until the day of Jesus Christ. That's Philippians 1.6. The completion of that work is not dependent upon you. The completion of that work is dependent upon God. And God uses his cross as an instrument to do his work. So as we resist the work of God in our flesh, guess what? The cross is applied to that flesh and that flesh is crucified and ultimately killed so that God can bring us to that place of newness, that place of life that's found only in Jesus. God in His love is using and working through every season of our life. He is Creator and He is Lord of all the seasons, natural and spiritual. Romans chapter 5 verses 1 through 6 reveals that God works through the seasons of tribulation to produce ultimately hope. And He promises in Romans chapter 5 that hope does not disappoint. Because Hope has been poured into us by the Holy Spirit because God poured His love into our hearts by His Spirit. So God works through the season of tribulation to produce hope, to bring about transformation in our life. And in and through all things, both bitter and sweet, God is working and producing a more eternal weight of glory. This is what Paul writes in, in, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians excuse me, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, that these light afflictions, Paul says, are working for us a more eternal weight 
of glory. And the eternal weight of glory that God is producing is presently unseen. Very often we can only see the tribulation. We can only see the valley of shadow that we're walking through. But we need to have the assurance of faith that God is producing. God is working for us a more eternal weight of glory even though we cannot see it right now. We must know what God has declared. We must know and we must understand that God has made that certain. He's made his promise certain not just because he hollered down from heaven and said, hey guys, just, just trust me. No, he didn't just do that, but God sent his son from heaven to die for us on a cross to take what we rightly deserved in himself so that we would know that God's promises are true. That though we cannot see it now, we know it is true because God sent his very own son to take in himself what was rightly ours, that is the wrath of God. So God in his love is working through all the seasons of our life. He's working for us a more eternal weight of glory. In Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 29, I'm not going to read it, but I wish you would. We see that in Paul writing this letter, in this section of Paul's letter to the Romans, Paul reveals that the season of God's love has no end for his children. There is not just a season that God loves you and then that season is past. No, God's love for you is eternal. God's love for you is unconditional. There is no season to come and go in God's love. And this is what Paul is writing here in this section of Romans chapter 8. That God's love has no end for his children. God in his love is working toward our glorification, and nothing can separate us from that love and from that glory in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 29 and 30, this is where the scripture says, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. And that ultimately we will experience glorification by the work of God's Holy Spirit. So here's my challenge to you, Christ Fellowship. Here's my challenge to you, Christian. Whether you're a member of this church or not, there is a work to do. There is a work in this church. There is a work in this city. There's a work in this county and beyond. We need laborers because the fields are white for harvest. And unless the Lord builds the house, those that build... Those that labor, they labor in vain. We don't want to labor in vain, but we must have laborers, workers willing to lay down their lives, willing to embrace the cross, willing to be joyfully used up by God for the work of His kingdom and the glory of His name. There is a cost, but the benefits far exceed any cost in this life or in this world. There is a greater cause. I want you to hear this. I want you to understand this. People devote their lives to all sorts of things. They spend their time, their treasure, their talent on all sorts of endeavors that literally consume their lives. And in the end, when you look back on your life, what will you have invested your time, your talent, and your treasure in? What will you have lived for when you are brought to death's door? 
Will it be Christ and the gospel and the glory of God in the church to all generations? Or will it be for earthly kingdoms and earthly treasure and earthly purposes that are going to burn and be blown away with the chaff? The most tragic thing you can have happen is for you to look back at the end of your life and sadly realize that you spent your time and gave all for the things that have no eternal value. I pray you find the benefit of all the cross will cost and walk in it with joy for the eternal glory of God. It is never too late. Here's good news. God is a redeemer. He doesn't just redeem people, but he will redeem time. And he knows how to redeem time. Do not delay to embrace the work of the cross. Embrace Christ. Lose your life that you may gain his. Count the cost, but know the benefit you gain in Christ will far, far exceed any cost in this world. Know that he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that works in us. That's Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. And then Paul ends that chapter with these words. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. May it be so, church. May it be so in your life. May it be so in Christ's fellowship. May it be so in the church of the Lord Jesus.